you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Emily Guerin, host of California City. So last week on September 3rd, LA Studios and the Autry Museum of the American West held a virtual event together about the allure of the Mojave Desert. I was the host and our guests were Ken Lane of the Desert Oracle podcast and Kim Stringfellow. She's a writer and photographer whose work is focused on the Mojave. We talked about a lot of interesting things. The myth of the desert is wasteland, utopian fantasies, spectacular failures, UFOs, and coronavirus refugees. Here's an edited version of our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I feel like a lot of you probably know the story of the podcast, California City, but I just kind of wanted to give a brief overview. So I've spent a lot of the last few years thinking about the Mojave Desert, and in particular, this one small town in the Mojave Desert, California City. And basically, the story I told through this podcast was one, it took place over 60 years. And over that time period, real estate developers have been selling this dream, right? That this place is gonna boom one day. And if you buy land now, you'll get rich. And lots of different people have made this pitch in California city over the years. You know, in the sixties, the pitch was kind of tied up in suburbanization. LA was crowded, it was polluted. You know, it could be obliterated by an atom bomb any day, but out in the desert, there was more room, there was clean air, it was safer. The pitch changed a little in the 80s and 90s. Back then, it was more about having a getaway, a place to relax, spend time with your family. And then more recently, the pitch was more investment-oriented. Invest in your future, get ahead. You know, lots of people have gotten rich through owning land. Why not you? And one assumption that I think underlies all these pitches is that the desert is a wasteland. It's this empty, barren place just waiting to be developed and exploited and really profited off of. So I wanted to start out our talk by asking Kim to talk a little bit more about where this assumption came from that the desert is a wasteland. So Kim, what can you tell us about that? A great part of the way we perceive the desert is from our physical experience of it. Um, You know, as we got technology that made it more comfortable to be out in the desert, air conditioning, things like that, then our idea of it started to change. But Really, the foundations of how we perceive it are from Eurocentric cultural traditions, such as religion. Um, These ideas, they really permeate our understanding of arid places. And um, I think also it depends where you're placed, where you're from, you know, depending on where you originally come from. If you're a New Englander, you may see the Mojave as a wasteland, you know, it's just an empty, empty space. And you may say, well, it's perfect to cite industrial wind and solar developments. You know, Mormons came out to the West with an idea of making the desert bloom. And they had a huge impact on how the American Southwest was utilized and commodified. They have a lot of respect for it as well. But, you know, on the other hand, if you're a Tibisha Shoshone, you're Chumwevi, Mojave, Southern Paiute, you may see this as a really rich, diverse, and verdant landscape. It could be a sacred geography. And I think that, you know, there was something very alluring to a lot of people about this place that, that many of them did consider an empty wasteland. You know, it's something I wrote about in the last episode of the podcast that kind of the nothingness makes the anything possible. And I think that the desert really does lend itself to kind of wild visions and huge plans, you know, many of which have kind of a utopian bent. And so, Ken, you've written about some of these kind of wild, outlandish, and ultimately failed schemes of the Mojave. And I was hoping you could tell us about a few of them. Not all of them were failed. Palm Springs developed as first as a bohemian colony for artists, poets, visual artists especially. And the springs were developed as health resorts, and the desert was seen as very healthful. The clean air, the wild, very wild landscape, the rugged landscape. So people who had tuberculosis and had money would come spend their time in places like Palm Springs and throughout the Southwest where they had 
these very luxurious but romantic Western lodgings. And from those sorts of approaches, you also had more complete societies like uh, Llano del Rio up in the Antelope Valley. It's near Phelan and Penyon Hills, not too far south of Edwards Air Force Base. And there people made a socialist utopia a century right. ago. And it struggled as, a, as an organization and as a business. But the idea of communes and utopias have sprung up in the desert again and again. And there's lots of small ones to this day. Yeah, and Kim, you wrote about some of these sort of utopian kind of very pre-planned societies as well. I think you've actually written about Llano del Rio too, right? Yeah, yeah, I looked into it. It's it's really fascinating, you know, at the time. I mean, it sounded like a, a wonderful place. I think too, though, you know, in the context of the time, let's say that, um, you know, it was it was predominantly, you had to be white to be part of it. And that was one of the things that I kind of looked at and exposed. And I contrasted actually in that particular dispatch because in Landfair Valley, which is the Eastern Mojave Desert, there was a community called Dunbar, which was an African-American settlement out in the desert. They homesteaded out there. And so, you know, there were, like Ken says, there were these groups of people, you know, that were looking for this place. And the desert has always kind of been a place to project these kinds of either fantasies or these ideas because it is kind of an open you know, the, the way, the physicality of the place. And, and to me, one of kind of the most audacious kind of failed, failed in quotation schemes is, is Salton City. Um, you know, partially because the developer of Salton City, Ken Phillips, he actually mentored Nat Mendelssohn, the developer of California City. And apparently Penn Phillips used to go around saying, you know, you can't buy a bad piece of land in California. I know both of you have spent time kind of thinking about Salton City Ken, do you want to just start out and kind of give a little overview of what kind of what the what the pitch was? Like, what was Salton City supposed to be, and and how, in your mind, does it compare to um, to California City? Well, you know, they were they were really looking at it. Okay, so Palm Springs had been, you know, it was established, like Ken said. You know, it had become this popular destination for you know Hollywood. So. They came in in the 1950s and decided to make this master planned city. And M. Pem Phillips was, you know, working with the beet sugar companies and that they, they had all this land and then they started to develop it. But it was also very, uh, like, it was speculation. That's the problem with all of these communities is people, most people didn't go in there to build houses. They went in there to make money. You know, they just saw it as a place where, I'm going to buy this and hold on to it. And it didn't work out so well because, you know, they had this heyday and actually during the late 1950s, they had more visitors to Salton city than they did to Yosemite national park. It was that popular. And, you know, when they started to have the environmental problems, the flooding, all the things that started to happen in the eighties and nineties, you know, that just completely collapsed. So I'm wondering, actually, Ken, when you go to Salton City or when you go to California City, I, I feel like these two are sort of these examples of like some of the biggest planned communities in the desert that didn't necessarily pan out. Like, how do you view them? Do you view them as like failures? Do you view them as warnings? Like, what do you see when you go to these places? Oh, a couple of things. Uh, one way I think of them is how my older relatives in California and the people I knew from previous generations, how they saw these places. And they saw them as these wonderful winter getaways, these second homes, the way if you live, say in uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota or something, you might have a cabin by the lake. They were affordable places where a family could buy a little cabin or build something they had some glamour associated with the fact that Hollywood people were flocking to Palm Desert and Palm Springs. So these were more the, the regular people's version of that. And people would take their boats out to the Salton Sea and stay in their little house for Christmas. And they thought it was, it was wonderful. And it, and it can be very pleasant in, in wintertime, uh, especially before the sea started sinking in the case of the Salton Sea, it smelled a lot better. 
So they were, I think we have added a sort of apocalyptic gloom to them after the fact that they did not have at the time. Even in places like California City, I had an older relative from Orange County who thought it was wonderful that she didn't have any neighbors for three or four of those streets. You know, she had a bunch of rescued desert tortoises. <laughs> it's definitely a good place to go if you have a lot of space. And I think too, in terms of your point about like how it was seen then versus how it was seen now, you know, one of the questions we're getting is if the kind of scam that existed in California city existed other places. And I think Salton city is an example of a place where, probably depending on who you asked, you could find people who felt like that place was a scam and they had been scammed by buying land there. And then you could find other people who maybe sort of feel like it ended up being this like beautiful remote outpost on a lake with great birding, not a lot of neighbors. Like sometimes I think that scam is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Oh, certainly. For the birding is exceptional there. It's definitely changed because of all the environmental issues, but you know, they, I think they sighted more birds there than um, in the Everglades, you know, cause it's on the Pacific flyway. So there's a lot of different aspects, you know, to that um, area, you know, and there's also Slab City, which is a very interesting cultural phenomena. Um, you have some artists that do the Bombay Beach Biennale, um, that are working in Bombay Beach area, which is on the eastern side of the Salton Sea. And they've been working with people, you know, the residents there, but also bringing in um, this very interesting cultural event, you know, yearly. Um, so there are some things that are, are happening. And as I said, you know, people do live in Salton City. I haven't been down there for quite some time, so I haven't actually, you know, I can't really give you firsthand, you know, information about where it is right now, but I suspect that, you know, it will evolve, you know, like a lot of places in Southern California. I actually went there last winter and they had a map, there was a real estate office I went into and there was a map up on the wall, like a tract map. And I talked mm -hmm. to a real estate agent there and it was like, to me, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, it was very similar to California city and that they were still sort of selling yeah. vacant plots of land. And I think, Kim, you've written about kind of how this desire people have to just own land, like just this sort of irrational desire to own something, yeah. own desert land has kind of been with us for a while in the United States. Yeah. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of the origins of this with the Small Tracts Act, you know, this wildly popular U.S. government program in the 30s that essentially gave away little pieces of government land in the desert to people. So like, what was this program and why was it so popular? Yeah, so the Small Tract Act 1938 was really designed to provide veterans with kind of script, you know, land for them actually to recuperate. Um, there were a lot of World War I veterans that had lung issues from mustard gas. And so uh, there was a doctor out here, Dr. Lucky, and he um, was sending, he was from Pasadena, he was sending a lot of these veterans out to the 29 Palms, Morongo Basin area, and they were setting up homesteads and things like that. So there was a general land office um, representative and he came out and he started to study what they were doing and decided, you know, people don't really need to have, you know, a huge homestead and need to prove it up with a working ranch or farm and all these things. What they could use is some land to recreate on, recuperate, have a, you know, a little recreational cabin and so um, he came up with this idea for Congress where you could get five acres. And these were going to be areas of, that they were disposing of, which I think is such a strange right, term. Right, wasteland, disposal. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, they don't have um, any mineral rights. They don't have water. There's no utilities, no roads. You got to do everything. You just own the surface of land, essentially. And I guess, you know, what struck me about this and was that, like, there was like no deceptive marketing required, right? Like yeah. the Bureau of Land Management would be pretty straight up with people about like, this is really remote. You know, there's no utilities. It's probably not worth a lot of money. Yeah. And at these auctions, people were like, oh me, I want to bid, I want to bid. And I just wonder, and maybe Ken, you can weigh in on this. Like, what is it about this? Like, why is there this allure to just like ownership of the desert? Like why do people just want to have their own little piece of it and are willing to seemingly overpay, you know, why? 
Well, the land in the Morongo Basin, today's Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, 29 Palms, you could not get ripped off. That was a bargain. It was just a small fee to the federal government. And as Kim said, as long as you built your cabin, you proved up, which you could do for under a grand. You could have a standing cabin. A lot of those places are worth a half million dollars today. So yeah, uh, but actually was a good investment. So yeah, but some now they were anything. <laughs> right. Lots of them were knocked down in the early 2000s before our current fad of loving the Mojave Desert, which kind of goes up and down in Southern California. It was considered a nuisance that we had so many of these cabins standing around. And so San Bernardino County got a grant and knocked a whole bunch of them down. Yeah. People yeah, they, would kill for those today. They called it shack attack. Right. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting too, and I know this is something, Ken, you've written about this, that sort of at the same time as people were like kind of just wanting to do their little modern pioneer thing and like homestead on these little pieces of land, there was also this kind of like very spiritual, almost like religious draw that some people had to the desert, right? And, you know, I saw that in California City. I talked about this. There's this ceremony on the 13th of every month called Lady of the Rock, where women in white robes sort of claim to see the Virgin Mary in the sky. And I know the desert is sort of littered with these sort of spiritual groups that gather. And Ken, you've written about some of them. So, like, what are a couple examples? And sure. What, you know, there's Judaism. There's Islam. There's Christianity. Sure. They are all desert religions. And in North America, we have uh, the Mormon Church, which even though it was established by a New Yorker, it flourished by following uh, a prophecy that went to the leaders to go to the desert, reclaim the desert, and green the desert. It seems like there's, and I, I know you've both sort of written about like the, even beyond religious and spiritual, but like sort of extraterrestrial, like this idea that anything can happen. There are vast mysteries in the desert. And I wonder if there are sort of a few examples you guys can give of these kind of like great sort of conspiracies or just like great mysteries that have come out of the Mojave. Sure. One thing that has always happened at the same time uh, in the West and specifically in Southern California is the development of science fiction and the development of UFO theology. They've gone hand in hand because by the early 50s, the few scientists who were looking at UFOs said, eh, whatever they are, they're not spaceships from other planets. They're seen too often. They don't make any sense. They're not doing anything useful. It's some sort of phenomenon we don't understand. But Hollywood had come up and the pulp magazines had come up with aliens and spaceships and everything else. So at Giant Rock, which is right in the middle of land track parcels, north of Flamingo Heights and Landers today, 10, 12,000 people would come from LA and Long Beach over treacherous dirt roads to stand out in the sun at Giant Rock and listen to people talk about how they had met the people from Venus or they had met the people from this galaxy or that galaxy and they had a message and they were space messiahs. So a lot of the people learned about the desert, learned about the area where Kim and I live in particular from these UFO conferences, which went on all the way until the early 70s. Well, and I wonder if some of it has to do too with the kind of like space race sort of military presence in the desert. And, you know, anyone who's driven really in the Mojave outside of greater LA has seen how much of the land is owned by the military and sort of fortified. And what role do you think that kind of the military presence has played in these kind of like myths that we tell ourselves about the desert, especially the sort of supernatural like space type myths? Uh, the original Star Trek, which was shot in Los Angeles, and the outdoor scenes were mostly shot in the Mojave Desert around Los Angeles. The original story of the captain, a Captain Pike, is that he's from Mojave, California, which has been turned into this green paradise, and it's a Starfleet place. So, of course, today, Mojave is really a spaceport, and it adjoins Edwards Air Force Base by a few miles, where... We tested all of our hypersonic jets where the space shuttle used to land. We named the space shuttle after Star Trek, the Enterprise. That was the first one. 
So there was this idea that we were reaching some sort of utopian military global space culture. If we could only get to the moon first. And then we got to the moon and of course they shut it all down and laid everybody off. But the dream (laughs) had been, that's where we were going. You know, that's why baby boomers to this day are so angry that they never got their jetpacks. They got everything else, but they didn't get jetpacks. Right, right. And, you know, there's... You know, you go, Kim. Oh, I'm just saying, you know, there's... Mojave is, you know, the center for um, civilian space travel if you have the money, you know. So there's lots of really interesting things that are going on there. So we're getting a question about about going back to kind of this failed scheme conversation about what it actually takes to make a desert city work. And the question in particular is about water resources, but I think it's broader too. I mean, what does it take to make a community become a Palm Springs and not a Salton city? So um, what do you guys think? What's sort of the key to success for these like grand plans people have in the desert? And what distinguishes the successes from the failures? Well, I think in the, you know, with Coachella Valley, there's a vast, you know, aquifer underneath it, which is being drained. <laughs> I mean, you know, I did a project where I counted all the golf courses in Coachella Valley. There were over 125 golf courses. Only some of them use recycled water. So all of, you know, that water is being drafted or, you know, it's supplemented through Metropolitan Water District and right, things like that. River. But yeah. they have subsidence just like they do in Central Valley because they're pumping so much. So yes, that's definitely in a desert community. You got you got to have some water, or you got to you got to bring in the water. Um, you know, for instance, the Center for Land Use Interpretation, Matt Coolidge did this great piece on the Mojave River. The Mojave River doesn't flow. It, there's lakes, development lakes, where there's suburban communities all up through, you know, to Barstow. And um, all that water comes from Northern California. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it is really interesting when you look at the hydrology, you know, of, of the area and, you know, how it's been manipulated. I wonder too about the way the cities are kind of sold because both Salton City and California City, the land was sold very piecemeal to people all over the world. I mean, you could mm-hmm. come in and buy a lot for like, and then $50 a month versus sort of other kind of older communities where like neighborhoods were planned, you know, the lots were sold to a developer who would then build houses and then people would buy the houses. I mean, I feel like the sort of scattershot land sale model has resulted in a lot of sprawl. And, you know, going back to the homestead stuff we were talking about earlier, the little cabins that are scattered all over, especially the Joshua Tree area, like that's a very... I think when you sell land piecemeal, you don't necessarily result in like a well-planned city no, per se. That's, yeah, definitely one of the problems with it is, you know, it's checkerboard. There's public uh, lands, federal lands, county lands, private lands. People up here in Joshua Tree and Yucca Valley in this area, we love that it doesn't look like an Orange County suburb where every miserable house is, looks exactly the same and it only has a different color car in the driveway, you know, like Edward Scissorhands, because we have this wonderful landscape where you have a bunch of lots that have been cleared, so they don't have uh, any sort of housing there. They just have wildlife and plants, flora and fauna, and the land that did not sell during the Homestead Act was returned to the government. So throughout the Morongo Basin, you might have five acres and five acres is awesome. There's a reason why people want land because you get to walk out and look around and say, this is mine. But if you have five acres and it's surrounded by five other five acre lots without a cabin or these days an Airbnb on them, you're a king. You have 25, 30 acres. You know all the animals. That's where you hike. And it's like living in another century, even though you're two and a half hours from Los Angeles. Hey, this is Emily here. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around because up next, we're going to talk about the new commodification of the Mojave, Instagram. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. 
Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. I was excited to talk to Ken and Kim about tourism and Instagram because I think it really ties into a lot of the themes we'd been discussing. The allure of the desert, the commodification of it, the perception of it as like this harsh, barren place. And so how would you describe the image of the desert that is being marketed now via Instagram or via, you know, influencers? Like what is that image that they're selling? It is a life that you can live outside of the rat race. It's a life with an affordable house, an affordable mortgage, open skies. You can hike anywhere. You have wildlife tramping on your porch every morning. And so it's, all those things are good. What they leave out with that stuff, you know, we talked about Yano Del Rio before, the socialist utopia, their main problem was not that the business failed, that they were, trying, they were trying to make industries to run their little town. Their main problem was hostility from right-wing ranchers who surrounded them. They all got together and sued Yano over water rights. And once they didn't have water anymore and they didn't have enough income coming in to build an a aqueduct to serve the place, they were done. There wasn't going to be any farm. There wasn't going to be anything like that. So I'd say what gets left out are things like heavy wildfire risk. um, The fact that we are a very poor community. You may see on Instagram uh, influencers spinning around in five or six outfits in front of a Joshua tree and paying $300 a night. The neighbor to that Airbnb who probably can't sleep because of the DJ playing all night is probably living off social security, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and we both have friends that this is their business and, you know, they're, they're great hosts. They do this, but there's been, we've, we have so many people now that um, are kind of looking at this as, you know, this, this way to make a quick buck too. And so they've not that different, right? Sorry to interrupt him, but it's like really not that different from the sort of schemers of the past. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they've, they've come out and invested. And of course, you know, it disrupts like in a lot of places, the rental market, you know, for the people that need to live in town because they don't have a car and they need to be able to get to the local store, things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of different concerns, but I think what's always interesting too about this marketing and, you know, this, the way Instagram and social media has really created the projection that a lot of people are drawn to and, you know, come out here, Um, you know, they're not taking into account, like we have biblical winds out here, you know? And so there's a lot of people that they see this like really kind of perfect, you know, and, but that's not really the way it is. You know, there's scorpions, there's all kinds of choya that you're going to step on, you know, it's, it's, um, it's still rough around the edges and I like it that way. I'm sure Ken does too. You know, that's part of the appeal is it's not, um, you know, it's not perfect. It's not that cookie cutter suburb. Well, and I think too, the, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the, the tourism boom, especially in the Joshua tree area to me seems very predicated on like the proximity to a national park and like having access to these public lands. Whereas Mm -hmm. the kind of way that, um, Salton City and California City were sold and marketed, had like very little to do with preservation or access to public lands. It was very much about like a personal investment. Like you could, you could own this land with private property and you could get rich. And so I wonder how it's different when 
the kind of new marketing of the desert is so dependent on this like public resource being preserved and you know having been to joshua tree in the past few years it's like lines to get in and i know the park yeah. is under resourced and so like what is that tension like well it has changed a bit lately because of the economic collapse and the pandemic the national park was closed for a long time in fact the national park has been closed routinely over the last several years as the federal government is collapsing. So every time there's a government shutdown, every, every time there's some failure at the federal level, we pay for it here. They close the roads, nobody can come into the park, and people who depend on tourism, which has always been one of the economies here, the marine base and tourism, a lot of public lands. Remember the federal government took all of the desert, the entire desert, uh, after the, the U.S. war against Mexico that took all of this territory. So they took the land and decided what to do with it. So really what we see in these developments like California City, Salton City, wherever it might be, those were the scraps. Fort Irwin, Edwards Air Force Base, 29 Palms. These places got most of the land, the military yeah. bases. Yeah. And I wonder, too, I mean, are there... I'm sure as a local, you have a very different perspective on the kind of latest commodification of the area, but I mean, are there, are there upsides to it? And if so, like what, what benefits do you see kind of tourism and Instagram driven tourism bringing to the area? Well, you know, it's, it's definitely part of the economy here and it also brings in really interesting people, you know, so being someone who is very urban in my younger days, you know, I lived right in San Francisco for years. You know, I feel like I can live in a place like this, but I can still have a sense of culture, you know? Um, and, and that's, that's very attractive to me, you know, to be able to be, you know, in a more remote area. I don't like the in-between, you know, I don't like the suburban spaces. I grew up in them, you know, and I had to escape. Ken is so. nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you don't find a lot of a lot of suburban lovers. You know, we chase David Brooks out of here with a rattlesnake. <laughs> well, but we're getting a, Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say you guys were alluding to we're getting a question on this too kind of like how the area is changing now with coronavirus and sort of like coronavirus refugees who are fleeing the Yeah, cities. I saw that question. Yeah, so what's going on? Well, what's going on is that a lot of us who could work remotely, maybe because we were writers or professors and artists like Kim or whatever it is we did, environmental work, consulting. We could not live out here full time if you required the internet until about 2008, 2009. Yeah. That's when mm -hmm. we started getting barely tolerable internet. You know, there's, it's America. There's no rural infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it came in slowly. People, some people use satellites, some people use over-the-air internet. But until then, you did not have as many people from, say, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, the Pacific Northwest coming down here and staying or living here most of the year. Now that that's possible, a lot of people who maybe bought a cabin or were thinking about getting a cabin as an investment because the Airbnb thing has been kind of a goldmine land rush of, of this era. It's mostly small operators with a couple of properties, but you got, you got these companies coming in and they've got 20, 30 properties. A lot of them are underwater now. Yeah. Uh, so they saw, oh yeah, you can live out there. There's Wi-Fi. So why am I paying $2,800 for an apartment on the west side or in Los Feliz or something when I could own my own place for a third that much. Interest rates are low. You can't go anywhere anyway. At least you can walk out here. Of course, if they make this decision in August, in monsoon season, you know, the, the time we're in right now where you get up and want to die every day, they might reconsider. <laughs> but it's still maybe better than sitting, you know, in a climate change uh, affected apartment in Los Angeles right now and roasting yeah. because you have no escape there. So I'm seeing people who can start to move out here. And I'm getting the questions like, how are the schools? And my kids grew up here. They went to school here. Schools are fine. They're public schools. They're like anywhere. Yeah. And, 
you know, how, how long does it take to get to the airport, this sort of stuff. So as part of a nationwide trend, since we failed so spectacularly at dealing with the coronavirus, so now people, whether you're in New York or the Bay Area or Chicago, whatever, you're looking at those vacation cabins. A lot of them have been sitting empty and they're coming up on the market. So like, why not? You know, the city yeah. is done for now. And it's it's so funny because there, I just feel like everything keeps repeating, right? It's like when California City was being marketed, cities were done then too, but for different reasons, for this sort of like very thinly veiled racist, you know, like, oh, they're mm-hmm. dangerous and then polluted and then like the Cold War. And now cities are done for different, you know, a totally different reason. I'm wondering, Kim, do you think it's going to be permanent or do you think it's just people are going to come for a little while and, and go back? Well, you know, it's it's hard to tell, but I mean, there definitely has been people seriously bought houses during coronavirus and it's a strange recession to not have the real estate market, you know, it's, it's basically staying just, just where it's at. And, um, you know, for instance, a realtor friend of mine, she sent me a, um, there's an area called the Highlands, Joshua Tree Highlands, which is up near the park entrance. And there's a little cinder block cabin up there on five acres. And this is a very desirable area. I actually rented up there on five acres. It's just one room. There's no plumbing, indoor plumbing or anything. Um, it's going for 350000 you know, so that's, that's quite an appreciation of, you know, you spend $1,000 to get a small tract. Of course, that person has been long gone, but I like the idea, though, personally, as an environmentalist, of people being closer, especially their children, getting their children outdoors into a place like this where they can actually spend time, maybe even free range, you know, I think that's really healthy. That's the way I grew up. And so, you know, that's one thing that you don't get in some of these urban spaces is the freedom, especially for children, young people to actually experience nature. So I hope it's a good thing, but also people need to learn to respect it and to recreate properly, which we have a lot of problem in the national park. Yeah. So a question about kind of a different type of like gold rush in the desert. So, uh, we got a question about uh, marijuana and like pot cultivation. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of small desert communities, California City, Adelanto, are really kind of like banking yeah. on this to be like yeah. their next cash cow. And I know, Kim, you've written some about this. So like what, you know, first of all, like why, 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 are, why are these cities opening themselves up to these industries and like do you guys think that they actually will sort of succeed in making these places boom when, you know, not much else has in the past? I, well, I don't know if they're going to boom necessarily, but it has been like Desert Hot Springs. It, I'm noticing that right. they're getting tax dollars to do some improvements, beautify, do things like that. And I think that's, that's really a good thing. Um, I think Adelanto is really interesting because Adelanto doesn't really – it really doesn't have anything special there. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be mean, but like Victorville has some rock formations and things like that. They don't have much. So they've really made, you know, in the nineties prisons, you know, it was known for all these prisons. And so that doesn't sit well with people that are looking for a place to raise their family. You know, you need to make sure that you can market your your city, your town in a certain way. So I think what they're doing is really interesting, getting the medicinal, you know, it was even before the ordinance for recreation had passed, but they kind of figured it was going to happen. Um, well, and I guess the thing I wonder about, because California City also is, you know, when I was there, the city manager at the time described uh, marijuana cultivation as like, like the train is in the station and it's marijuana and this train is going to leave the station and we need to get on it because we don't know when the next train is coming. And it reminded me of, um, and maybe this is why I gravitated towards California city when I first moved to LA, it reminded me a lot of the oil field towns in North Dakota where I used to be a reporter and that kind of like boom bust mentality and really like hitching yourself to this one industry that you think is just going to make you. And then it could also break you. And so I always am a little skeptical of that, like, boom, bust Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Regardless of the industry. Yeah, you got to diversify. San Bernardino County has been very hostile to any kind of industrial marijuana operations in the Morongo Basin 
There are, there are not even marijuana retail stores. There are no dispensaries. There are no grow operations. And I think that that's been a pretty good choice as far as pursuing that as an industry, because when you pursue something like that, that's industrial, that, that depends on being industrially scaled, then as soon as the market dips, like in the Bakken where you were a reporter, everything falls apart. So a more diversified economy that's a combination of people who want to live in the desert because they love it, nature tourism, perhaps things like space tourism when you're talking about, yeah, I can very much see California City in 20 years being a luxury space city development. You know, if we, if we haven't all gone extinct at that point, because it's in a perfect place, it's close to LA, it's gonna be close to this Vegas to LA train, uh, which is gonna uh, end in Victorville right now. That's the latest plan. So any, any kind of move to one industry is gonna save us. Say like you end up with company towns like Eagle Mountain, the Kaiser Mill, where you just had houses built around the steel pit. And then once the war was over, the whole place was abandoned. Like a lot of our mining towns that are picturesque ghost towns today, they were one industry towns. And as soon as the gold ran out, the silver ran out, or the water ran out to run the mill, then it it was done and everybody just left. And now we have Calico outside of Barstow where you can go and, and watch Old West people walk around in the dirt. That was a thriving town. So maybe you guys can help me with this one. So, so a question about kind of the vast, like, maze of unbuilt roads that we see in, you know, most acutely in, like, Salton City and California City, but also in other parts of the desert. Um, a question about, like, how these roads get built, how developers can just build roads kind of far beyond their ability to develop them. I mean, I only know the answer for the kind of privately owned developments, which is that it was private land. Often the roads, at least in California City, were built in the 60s and 70s. The permitting process was easier then. I don't know how all the like maze of roads gets built on Bureau of Land Management land, but I think the question is also about kind of like the environmental um, degradation that comes with that, with just like the sprawling network of roads to nowhere. So do you guys have thoughts on the roads, how they get built, what the effect is? The Mojave Desert, it may seem like really kind of empty and wilderness, but there, I think David Darlington in his Mojave book said there is a road, you know, within five miles. You know, there's always, there's always, if it's a dirt road, something, you know, it has been like those prospectors, they went over this area with a fine tooth comb trying to find that gold, you know, almost everywhere has been explored, you know, so which I find really interesting, but yet you can have something like King Clum Creosote out in Lucerne Valley, which has been this creosote ring that's been around since the Pleistocene. And there's a road to a mine close to it. It probably wiped out maybe even a bigger clone out there, but that land has been intact. It hasn't been manipulated by you know, humankind for 10,000 years. That's pretty amazing. There's, you know, when you, when you think about that. So a couple kind of California city specific questions. I never know what to do with this question and I've gotten it a lot. Um, so with the question is, would there be any reason to hold onto a parcel of land in California city? Um, this person says my mother's occasionally given offers to buy ours, but way under what we paid for it. I mean, I would love to hear Ken and Kim, what your take is too. If someone has a piece of land, whether they feel they overpaid for it or not, I don't know. You know, one piece of advice I've given people is like, there's there's a couple good realtors in town who will just like straight up tell you what they think your land is worth. Also, the Kern County Assessor's Office fields these calls like all the time. And you do have the option, I'm not, this is not like legal advice, but you do have the option of, um, if you can't find a buyer of not paying your property taxes and the county will auction off the land five years mm-hmm. later. And that's something a lot of people do in California City who find themselves with land that they feel like they'll never get any money for. Um, But what would you guys do if you owned land in California City? Would you keep it? Would you sell it? Would you let it go to tax auction? 
I, I just want to say, you know, you need to do due diligence for any investment. You really need to do research. You really need to, you know, go out there and, and do that before you sign any papers. So I hope that's helpful, but I think it depends. Like if your property's paid off and you're comfortable with those property taxes and you got this place and maybe you're off roader and you know, you're going to come out there and camp, keep it, you know, it's, it's, it is beautiful up there, you know, in Cantile and California city and up in Randsburg. So um, I don't know, but you know, like you said, if, if it's a burden, there are ways to relieve yourself of that burden. When I was a kid, I had some friends and their parents were, their dads were aerospace engineers, a kind of typical SoCal thing of the 70s, 80s, 60s, before that. And I was so jealous of the kids whose parents or grandparents had a California city place not so much the ones with houses, but the ones who did not have houses because they would go up there for Christmas when the weather's just incredible. And you've got the snow over the San Gabriels and the Joshua trees everywhere and the animals and everything. And they would go out and have Christmas time there, whether an RV or some kind of canvas army tents and people would come out. And I got to visit a couple of those things when I was in high school. And it was... I was doing a lot of desert driving at that time because I, I had the bug. But it was one of the things that made me want to live in the Mojave. Yeah. Being And it was weird going down those streets where you go by like 20 cul-de-sacs and they're all cracked with ragweed growing out of the asphalt and everything. But once you got on a lot and it was there, I thought, this is, this is something that, that – middle-class people and working-class people were able to have. And yeah, you're not going to make your money back probably until the, the spaceport requires McMansions all around California City and Mojave. But you've got something. And if you can enjoy it a little bit, I wouldn't be in a rush to give it back to the state of California. Yeah. I agree. I think it depends on what you how you define like value because obviously a lot of the land there especially the more remote off the grid land with no road access like doesn't have a lot of monetary value and you know i'm sorry for anyone who was told that and and paid tens of thousands of dollars for this land but i do think there are other kind of non-monetary aesthetic values that or even just like the sense of you always have a place to go like that's occurred to me like oh i could I could buy land there and I would always have a place to go that's mine. And there's something about that that is appealing and very American and probably why so many people end up getting taken advantage of because it's like this irrational thing we just want. So I guess you just have to ask yourself, like, why do I want this? And like, what is valuable about it to me? Because you're, you're probably not going to get rich off of it. And let's just, let's just, what what are, what are the property (laughs) taxes on an undeveloped lot in California city right now? A couple hundred a year? Yeah, California City is funny because it has uh, a parcel tax, which is a flat tax. So every landowner pays a certain amount and it helps fund public services in town. So the property taxes can be like two or $300 a year on a piece of land that might only be worth five or $600 total. So I think that's when yeah. the equation gets a little yeah. difficult, Sketchy. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's do, we're running out of time here, but we just had one more kind of question about, um, (laughs) this is just about kind of like the infrastructure that we're talking about, the remoteness of some of these places. Um, a question about why kind of the infrastructure in California city, and I think probably a lot of other desert communities is, is going to pieces. And I don't know, I mean, do you guys think like, is it the climate? Is it that we see the decay more because there's kind of nothing to hide it? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of sort of ruin porn type tourism that happens in these towns to look at abandoned roads, abandoned buildings. And I don't know if it's that that stuff is just more visible or it actually is more decrepit. So um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, why do we see so much sort of decay in some of these Mojave desert towns? We don't have, you know, trees and you know, under, you know, we do, it's just open, it's, it's exposed. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, 
it's interesting because when I did the Salt and Sea project initially, I mean, that's what it was about, that kind of ruined porn aspect. And if I had done that project now, you know, if I was just starting on it, I would have done a very different type of project. But it was a time capsule of where it was at at that particular time. So, um, you know, and I think it is interesting. But, you know, myself, I've moved beyond that. So when I go to somewhere like Trona, you know, I'm really interested in like the culture of Gemarama or things like that, rather than just looking at th that's just the surface. You know, you need to look beyond that. The developments like California City and a bunch of other such places that did not have a reason for a population to already be there. Those are the, the field of dreams kind of places, you know, build, build it and eventually somebody will come and buy it even if there's not a huge market for it. And so those places had to throw up some infrastructure to sell it, to convince people they'll, there will be something here, you know, you're gonna have shopping centers and parks and bike lanes and everything eventually. If you have enough people, you're gonna have infrastructures notoriously, horrifically expensive, and you have to sell bonds to get it built if it's public infrastructure. So if you have no tax base and no people, well, you, you know, you're going to get California City, watch out for the potholes. And uh, it will probably be like that until something changes so that there's a bunch of people there that requires it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a nice note to end on, the sort of like looking beyond the ruin porn. And um, I think a lot of people that I met in California City felt very strongly that uh, like they took offense to the idea that it's a failed community. And so I tried to make clear that it was the developer's dream that had failed, not the community itself. And so I think if you do go out there, yeah, I mean, drive around on the empty roads, like that is the most obvious thing that you notice when you're there, but also like visit some of the small businesses and go to the waterfall on the park and, you know, try to listen to the rare birds. Like it's a birding yeah. hotspot. Yeah, and yeah. Like Kim said, just to sort of see what's there and not just sort of what, what failed or, or yeah. what isn't there. Thanks so much to the both of you, Ken and Kim, for joining me. And if, if, you, if listeners, viewers, you haven't checked out Kim's Mojave Project, you totally should. Same with the Desert Oracle. They're very worth experiencing. Thanks to the Autry for partnering with us on this event. Thanks to my colleagues at KPCC and LAS Studios. You can listen and subscribe to California City. We're, we're done with the kind of like full season. We'll probably have a follow-up at some point on the Silver Saddle case, but it's it's going to be a while. Um, you can listen on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You've heard me say that in the podcast like 5,000 times. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Garen Emily. If you have specific questions about Silver Saddle, you can message me there. Good night, and thank you so much to everybody for joining us. It's been a pleasure to get to nerd out about the Mojave with you, so thank you. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.